We want to welcome you to the Reformed Informants. This is a podcast devoted to biblical exposition, systematic theology, and practical application for the good of the church. I'm Lance Burroughs. And I'm TJ Darty. And we are the Reformed Informants. It's a big day on the podcast. I don't know what you're talking about. Nothing to do with me. What, Nothing I, to do with me. Hey, what are we talking about today's episode, Lance? What do we got today? First off, we got to we got to talk about you, man. You are getting up there. Yeah, you're an old man, dude. You're an yeah. old man now, dude. I've I've officially arrived at at dad bod status, old man. Sta- I mean, I'm there, man. I'm past. I'm past thirty. I'm thirty one now. So, yeah. I'm, today is uh, TJ's thirty first birthday, and um. What's on what's on the docket, man? What are you guys doing? You're feeding that dad bod. Yeah, feeding the dad bod when I get home. Uh so much taking discussion care. about the dad bod, by the way. I feel well, like that's all over social media. That, it's I, I think know. it's just a way that so many people just embrace it, right? Steer into the skid. Uh <laughs> and and I'm gonna be working on that tonight. Chloe's taking care of dinner. She got a cake for me. Just gonna spend a little time as, as family tonight. That's all. Nothing, nothing crazy. Uh, I'm actually gonna try to get out of work at a reasonable hour tonight. Uh, typically Mondays, I get wrapped up in the office doing just so many things. Uh, you know how you know how that stuff goes. First day back and in, into the office after after the weekend services are usually just they just pile up real quick. So uh, forcing myself to get home. Yeah, you know, I, I definitely know what it's like to get back in the office on a Monday as an intern in comparison to a senior pastor. You know, all the same responsibilities, the same amount of work, um, uh, even the same amount of pressure. <laughs> well, I mean, if 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 there's if there's any for the listeners out there who who might be thinking, oh, Lance doesn't do anything. That's absolutely not true. Don't let him lead you down that road because you are ma- are navigating the pastoral world uh of as an intern but still embracing all that responsibility while simultaneously doing schoolwork and uh building every single episode guide that we do so uh cut yourself some slack there all right you you you, you're handling quite a bit in and of yourself so i need some of that birthday cake over there what kind (laughs) is probably get oh we went we went nothing bun cakes man gluten-free chocolate chip we're we're golden i have those in paris I do well in Lexington, but <laughs> yeah, we're, we're we're covered. That's good, man. Well, happy birthday, Thanks, listeners, brother. man! You got to reach out to TJ on social media. I know this episode will be a week after the fact, but there's nothing like telling somebody happy birthday one week later. <laughs> hey, just making me feel special a little longer, right? Well, I'm, I'm looking at this episode guide, man. <clears throat> Excuse me, and um, it's a it's a lengthy one. It is a lengthy discussion that we're about to embark on today, and we, we've got so many points that we want to cover um, throughout this episode as we dive back into Christology. Um, but, but TJ, I want to give it back to you here real quick now because I want you to update our listeners on what's going on in the month of September um, and then really through October and uh, November. Yeah, so this episode we're recording uh, on August 24th. It'll it'll release on August 31st, and then we'll have just a handful uh, of episodes. We're looking at maybe three or four more uh, beyond this uh, because uh, mid to late September, 
Uh, Chloe and I look to be adding a, a second child to the family. It all goes as planned. Uh, baby Kenley will be here. And so when that happens, uh, Lance has agreed to give me a, a little bit of a break. We're going to take a few weeks off, kind of uh, catch our breath, recover a little bit. So then tail end of the fall, we'll uh, ho- hopefully hop back in, do a few more episodes, and then uh, take kind of the, the Christmas uh, break like we did last year. Uh, so we're going to finish up, Lord willing, we'll finish up uh, with this episode and one more on uh, Christology. Uh, we may do a Q&A uh, kind of a catch-all episode beyond that. We may have some uh, standalone episodes, maybe some biblical exposition, maybe some guests coming in, having some conversations. We we still haven't ironed out uh, all the details on that, but uh, but that's kind of where we anticipate the next few weeks going. Um, and the goal really is to finish this Christology series. So, uh, Lance, I'll recap us real quick. Essentially, this is the ninth episode of Christology. We've got one more coming uh, that hopefully will kind of wrap this up. And we know we could spend, I mean, we could do dozens and dozens of episodes on this, but uh, really when we've talked about Christology, to sum it up, we've looked at the person of Christ, his humanity, his deity, his, the hypostatic union, his eternal existence, his preexistence, uh, role within the Godhead. Um, and now we're working through the work of Christ. So we've looked at his uh, role as prophet, priest, and king. We've looked at his role as uh, the sacrifice, the perfect uh, Lamb of God. Uh, and today we're going to continue in that conversation. Of course, we've talked about the atonement, his, his atoning work on the cross. But uh, today we're going to continue that conversation uh, with a little bit of a unique twist. And so I'm going to let you kind of introduce and talk about this. We wrestled with how to engage this particular aspect of of the work of Christ uh, that we're going to talk about today. And and it's challenging um, when you try to focus in on things because they bleed into one another. And so, Lance, could you kind of preview, give us an overview of where we're going, a flyby, so then we can get down into uh, having this conversation? Yeah, man. Thanks for kind of giving us uh, an update of what's going on this fall. It's a busy time, but we want to keep cranking out and pumping out episodes if we can. so we're excited about doing that. Even excited about getting a little break as another addition comes into your family. And then, uh, man, we'll get right back on the microphones. Yep. Also, thanks for recapping Christology. You, if, if, you're, if you're new to the podcast, we're in our Christology series. The first half that we've recorded was about the person of Christ. And really the back half that we're finishing right now is about the work of Christ. So today's episode is episode 54. This is Christology part nine. And we've titled... Uh, this particular episode, The Perfection of Christ's Satisfaction. The Perfection of Christ's Satisfaction. I borrowed that thing from Charles Hodge, so I want to give him credit. Um, I wondered but, where but that t- came from. I knew that wasn't you. Yeah, there, there's no way. I mean, I bought so many quotes and draw so many blanks on this podcast. Uh, there's no way I could create something like that. I'm too busy on Mondays is the deal. I know I'm you too are. Busy. <laughs> By the way, shout out to, if you, if you are... A longtime listener of the of the podcast. There's an outstanding meme that was submitted by one of our listeners. You need to go to social media and check it out. Uh, I don't need to preview it any more than that. Just go look at it because it it, it just captures so much of what happened in the early seasons of, of the Reformed Informance podcast. Terrific work. Thank you uh, to that to that submission. Anyway, continue. Okay, en- enough of that. Let's get back into this episode <laughs> here. Okay, so to kind of outline and detail. And, and kind of get the ball rolling on what we're going to discuss in this episode. 
I want to read from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, section 5, because there are two uh, statements um, within this confession uh, that really are the building blocks for the episode uh, that we're recording right now. So the Westminster Confession says, The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal Spirit, once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father, and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kings of heaven for all those whom the Father hath given unto him. Okay, so again, that's the Westminster Confession, chapter 8, section 5. But two things that I want to point out um, from that particular statement that will be our focus in this episode. N- number one, uh, the Westminster says the Lord Jesus had perfect obedience. Okay, the Lord Jesus had perfect obedience. So there it's talking about his incarnation, 33 years. He had perfect obedience. And we're going to talk about that here, here in just a moment. And then secondly, within that perfect obedience, he has fully satisfied the justice of God or fully satisfied the justice of his father. So those two points we're going to emphasize all throughout this episode. We're going to unpack those points, and that's really going to take us through um, uh, this particular episode, focusing on what Christ accomplished and what he satisfied uh, during the incarnation when he was uh, truly God and truly man. Yeah, uh, thanks for for setting us up really to have this conversation. And and I think the other thing that I would add for the listener, if you're you're trying to wrap your mind around this, maybe you're in your car, maybe you're you know doing something else, multitasking. You're trying to think, how can I simply grasp grasp what we are about to have this conversation over? Uh, I would say this: remember that we are talking about the work of Christ. So we've already talked about who He is. So now when you think about what did Jesus come to do, what did, what what tasks, uh, what purpose did he bring? Well, we've talked already about his role as a prophet, uh, as a priest, uh, as a king. We've talked about his atoning sacrifice on the cross, how he covered sin. Uh, we've talked about his role as the perfect sacrifice, uh, how he served not only as the priest who offered up the lamb, but he served as the lamb in uh, place of sinners. But in, in this episode, I want us to think about, and Lance, you've, you've set us up for this, but I want us to think about the perfection of his life uh, for those 33 years, right? Like he didn't just come into this world and the next day go to his death as an innocent, blameless, sinless being, but he lived a perfect life. There's a, there's obedience that was, you, you've highlighted this, his perfect obedience and the satisfaction uh, that comes because of his perfections. And so I want us to just kind of focus and have this conversation about the the perfections of his life uh, because I'm guilty of this. Uh, as a preacher of the gospel, I am very guilty of cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, right? Like, I don't, I say I feel I'm guilty of that, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I focus so much on the cross, 
But there was there was stuff that happened leading up to the cross that's significant uh, for the Christian life, and it's significant for our theology. And we need to recognize what happened uh, in those days leading up to the cross, and then ultimately, as we'll discuss next week, uh, which culminates in the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Man, I'm so hyped for that episode, by the oh, way. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. my goodness. There's a little preview there. Man, well, TJ, I always appreciate, you know, the additional content that you're able to throw in on the fly. And that, man, that was a perfect explanation of where we're going and why we're going that route. Uh, the only thing I would add to that, and I wouldn't even say it's really adding to that, but throughout the Christology series this summer, we we have tried to articulate that Jesus is more than just a miracle worker. He's mm-hmm. more than just being sinless, although he, although he is that, right? He, he, he is that. We're wanting to take our study and understanding of Jesus just a few steps further to really see the implications of his sinlessness. Yeah. And I think the Westminster sets us up perfectly for that. Your review and overview and really a picture of where we're going uh, helps set the stage as well. So what we're going to do here at the beginning of this episode is we want to establish what Jesus was perfect towards and who Jesus was perfect to. In other words, we want to establish that Jesus perfectly obeyed God and his law. Okay, mm-hmm. that Jesus perfectly obeyed God and his law. So this has to do with his sinlessness. But again, we want to take it one step further. So here really is our opening point. We want to establish it so we can have the right context that God and his law comes from God. God and his law is derived from the Godhead. Um, and there's some sub points that we want to make, but we want to start with God. And we want to establish the law of God according to Scripture. We want to see what God's law is, what it asks, and how humanity and Jesus have responded. Okay, so there's a lot of nuances and a lot of different directions that we want to go. Um so we, we've tried to organize this guide uh, in, in a manner that um, is succinct um, and that can concisely take us through uh, where, where we're going. So uh, I'm going I'm to start us off with point number one here, TJ. I'm going to swing it to you. Uh, that way you can explain this and draw this out a little bit more. But in terms of God and his law, we want to start with the character of God saying that God is holy and that God's law is holy. I think one of the best verses for this would be Romans chapter 7, verse 12. The Apostle Paul just flat out says it. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So really, Paul is summarizing God and God's law. He's saying it's holy, he's saying it's righteous, and he's saying it's good. Now, TJ, I want to swing back to you, because I want you, I want you to speak on that uh, in terms of talking about God and his holy law. Well, I'm, I'm really glad, Lance, that you, you pulled Romans 7 out. I think that that's exactly where uh, we need to go to have this conversation, because I think, as you said, it's the most succinct and direct statement on God's law and the fact that it is holy. And in context, what Paul is has been arguing is that those who are in Christ are no longer slaves to sin, but they are slaves to righteousness. And though he says that you, your bondage is not to uh, the ways of the world, it's not to uh, your flesh, but it is to 
Christ. And so then the question then becomes, what about the law? Is the law bad? Is the law evil? Is the law sinful? And Paul says, no, no by no means, he says, meganoitai, may it never be. The law is not evil. The law is not sinful. The law is holy. And the, the reason why it's important for us to see that is because the law does not fail uh, at all. The law has been established by God uh, in order to set apart, that's that word holy, to set apart his standard uh, by which men must attain righteousness. Uh, in other words, uh, a neutral being that is sinless still cannot fellowship with a holy, righteous God, right? Like there has to be a, a positive righteousness, and that positive righteousness is is attained or is manifested through a fulfilling of a holy law. And uh, I think the other thing I would comment on this, and Lance, I want you to uh, to you know say say whatever else I'm lacking here. But I, uh, another comment here is that most of the time when we think of the law, we think of Thou shalt not, and we think of the Ten Commandments, but the law, as we've said before, is the entire uh, the entire set of directions that God gives to His people as they were to inherit the Holy Land, right? Like this is their instructions for how to live, and so the law is good. It is. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's a it's a guide for the people of God to be holy, to be set apart from all other nations. And it's a gift to those people to protect them from sin, uh, but also to magnify and to glorify the name of God. Yeah. The only thing that I would add to that is that if you read through the Pentateuch, the first five books of scripture, you know, really the glue that's holding the entire law together is this idea that God is holy. Mm -hmm. Here's what God commands Here's what God instructs. Here are his statutes. Here are his precepts. Here are his laws. And God is establishing these things because he is holy. This is a reflection of his character. It's a reflection of his nature that God, uh, he, he set apart, like you said. So in the Old Testament, he calls the nation of Israel to be set apart. And he calls them into obedience to his law. How can you be set apart for God? By obeying His holy law. So there are no spots in His law. There are no errors in His law. Uh, there are no broken bones, if you will, in His law. The law is a picture of His good, holy, righteous, just character. Uh, it's like Genesis uh, chapter 18 says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Everything about God's law is right. Amen. Dude, that's 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 outstanding. Uh, along with that, continuing this conversation about the law, and and I hope that by the end of this we'll be able to see why this is so important. Uh, but not only is the law holy, but likewise the law is also immutable or unchangeable. Uh, this stems in the same way from the character and the nature of God. We see this in Malachi chapter three verse six uh, for. Uh, I, the Lord, do not change, God says. And because God doesn't change, the law doesn't change. And what that means is that the, the goalpost is not moving, right? It, there's not this moral relativism. There's not this this standard which changes based on uh, which day of the week it is or, or which era uh, of history we're in. No, this is a standard that is unchanging uh, because it comes from the immutable nature of of God himself. Another component to add to this is that 
God's law, his holy, good, unchanging law, must be kept perfect. It must be kept perfect by every single human being. Okay? That's God's standard. In other words, God can't say, hey, look, here's my holy law. Good luck with this thing. Keep it if you want. I'll be cool with that. You know, that, that, that's not what God commands. That not, that's not what he prescribes. God says, you must keep my law perfectly. And if you do so, you will live. If you do so, you will be righteous. You know, to that point that you had already mentioned uh, earlier, TJ, about there's a point behind uh, the law and righteousness and those things that we'll see come together at the end of this episode. But Leviticus chapter 18, verses 4 through 5 says, You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes, to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. And I would just make a couple comments here about those verses. Then I'm going to swing it back to you, TJ, that God says, look, here are my judgments. Here are my statutes and you will live if you do them. Okay. But attached to that twice, he says, I am the Lord, your God. In other words, God's law is directly attached to God. You can't, you can't break apart the two. God has established his judgments, he has established his statutes, his precepts, his law, but those things are attached to the character and nature of God. And God says, if you do these things, you will live. Yeah, that's uh, man, that's exactly right. I love that. Uh, we could we could do this for a long time talking about the perfection, the requirement of the perfection of the law. Uh, thinking about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, uh, where Jesus says, "Therefore, you must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." And uh, in in using this in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, kind of the key verse uh, to understanding this uh, sermon is whenever Jesus says in verse twenty, he says, "I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never." enter the kingdom of heaven. And so what he's showing them, what he's showing the people as he's preaching is the scribes and the Pharisees have have reached the pinnacle of righteousness on this earth, and that's not enough. That's what he's saying. You must have a perfect filling of the law. Um, A a lot of times, and, and man, like I think most of us are just, maybe this is a product of 21st century America, uh, where like, you know, the participation trophy runs rampant where it's like, hey, everybody, just if you try hard, like we just want you to feel like you're worth something. Uh, but have you ever like, have you ever had a, gotten a test back and you get like a 98 and you're just like, hey, like that's awesome. Like I'm pumped. I studied. I worked my tail off and get the test back and I got an A, uh, got a 98, got a 99. That's not good enough. Uh, James chapter two, verse 10 uh, says if whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. It, it is the law demands perfection. And so you you said that well, right? The law must be kept perfectly. The, the, the law is there is no such thing as I have kept all of these things, but I fail in this one area. Well, then you fail. Uh, the law has the law requires in and of itself it requires absolute perfection uh, because it is representative of a holy God and, and God in His holiness cannot by His nature cannot succumb He cannot uh, He cannot allow for an imperfection uh, or any kind of sin to exist 
without breaking fellowship with him. Yeah, that's good. I mean, look, honestly, I would be it would it would be it would be a moral victory for me if I got a ninety eight <laughs> on a <laughs> you know. I mean, but but with God, you know, we're talking about one hundred percent here, perfection. Right. Like I like how you mentioned that from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five. Uh, one one more verse that I would add uh, to the discussion here would be Matthew chapter nine verse seven. This is the story of the rich young ruler. Um, Jesus says, "Look, there's only one who is good." You know, referring to God. But then Jesus goes on to say, "If you want to enter life, keep the commandments." In mm. other words, if you want eternal life keep all of God's commandments. I mean, the, the, the standard of God is perfection. And we, we have to leave that standard there because that takes us into the next point um, uh, that we're going to find is that, well, can man honestly keep God's law to perfection? Well, absolutely not. Right. So what we see in God's law is that he has now laid out consequences for not keeping his law. Okay. Um, so I'm going to start with point number one, and, and then TJ, I'm, I'm going to hand it to you to, to, to work into point number two of this. But God's law has consequences. Uh, point number one uh, underneath this subheading would be that even angels face these consequences. The angels that rebelled against God, beginning with uh, Satan in Ezekiel 28, possibly Isaiah chapter 14, and Revelation chapter 12, the one-third of the angels that went with him, they rebelled against God and his holy law. Therefore, according to God's law, there is punishment for that rebellion, even for unholy angels. Even for unholy angels. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So in, in context, uh, Peter's writing about false teachers, false prophets, but he says, look, God did not spare angels when they sinned. Basically the point that he's getting to, hey, look, if God is punishing angels for breaking his law, if there's consequences for angels for breaking his precepts and his commandments, you know, how much more is there going to be punishment for uh, those who break his law in terms of human beings? Right. Which is exactly where I would go next. And you've set us up to do this is that not only are angels that sin, uh, not only are they punished, but of course we know that man uh, is punished for a failure to keep the law, for a failure to uphold the standards of God. And this goes, by the way, even before the Mosaic law, this goes all the way back, right? You can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, Shocking. Which, yeah, amazing. We were back in Genesis. Uh, the Reformed informants going back to Genesis. Amazing. Uh, which, by the way, this is this is not on the God, so take it with a grain of salt. God doesn't just give Adam and Eve the thou shalt not. He, he doesn't just say, don't eat of the tree of, uh, of uh, the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, he does say that, but he also gives them a positive command, right? They are to go forth to be fruitful and multiply. They are to, to fill the earth, to subdue it. So they have a task uh, to fulfill, and they fail in doing that because they violate uh, the command when God says in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. 
The point is there are consequences for a failure to uphold the law. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, the person who sins will die. This is, this is a straightforward statement. Uh, uh, we can go all the way to, to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. That's that's the payment. I, I love this quote that you've included here from Charles Hodge. He says, death is declared to be the wages, the proper recompense of sin, which justice demands that it shall receive. Because God cannot, consistently with his perfections, he cannot exonerate men from the obligation of obedience. And so he also cannot allow them to sin with impunity or with exemption from punishment. So this is a requirement. And where where failure happens, punishment happens. This is built into the law. Uh, there is no way in which uh, we just kind of turn our head and, oh, didn't see that. No big deal. And, and it just brushed aside. Uh, Lance, one other comment I want you to take over. I want to kick it back over to you. Uh, one other comment here. We have uh, laws. Society has laws. Society is a is uh, it's, it's necessary for there to be some kind of structure and order. We've talked about this with Romans chapter 13, but there are violations of the law that happen all the time. I mean, there's a decent chance that one of us is going to violate the law in some degree whenever we're in the uh, the v- our car at some point in the next week, right? Like maybe we go oh, two miles an hour over the speed limit. Maybe we don't fully stop at the stop sign, whatever that might be. I'm not justifying that. I'm saying there are violations of the law that happen all the time without punishment, right? Like there are things that happen where, eh, that person's doing something that's not quite right, but there is no punishment that actually happens. They don't get caught. Not so with God's law. God's law does not allow for there to be any kind of violation without punishment that comes. Yeah, that's a great illustration. And that, and that brings me back to, you know, one of the verses that you mentioned uh, just a minute ago, TJ, the, the, the passage from Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. And, you know, when you said the person who sins will die, uh, at the end of that verse, um, it says, the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself, mm. will be upon himself. So when we're thinking about God's holy law, and we are thinking about the requirement that God demands, and while we're also thinking about the sinfulness of humanity, it it is so easy and we are so prone to start pointing the finger at someone else and their sin and their wickedness. But what I want us to see is that that our sin and the requirement that God commands of us is on us. Mm-hmm. It, 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 is, it is on us individually. Um, that, that's what Ezekiel is laying out here in, in, in verse 20. The wicked will be, or the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. You and I uh, TJ are responsible for our own sin. We are we are responsible to God's law. Um, you know, we, we we can't blame our wives or we can't blame our kids. You know, th- th- this is on us. It's on every uh, individual. Um, you quoted from Charles Hodge earlier, and I'll quote from him again here: "As he, God, cannot consistently with his perfections exonerate men from the obligation of obedience." So he cannot allow them to sin with impunity. Again, you mentioned it, TJ. So just to bounce off your shoulders here, God cannot just turn his head. He cannot just close his eyes. He cannot just let it go. Okay, that that that, that is 
outside of his character. He, he I mean, he physically can't do that. Right. He, he can't let it go. Um, which brings us to our next point. Because God has a law, because he commands people to keep it to perfection, and because man cannot do that, Romans chapter 5, the wrath of God is on all men. So I'm going to swing it back to you real quick. You talk about these verses from Romans, and then, and then, and then I'll close up this section. Yeah, I mean, you could just you just think about Romans chapter one, um, really Romans one to three. This that's Paul's um, he, he's setting himself up in Romans one to three to to uh, explain the the depths of the gospel and justification by faith and all those wonderful doctrines that we treasure. But he does this by highlighting that the wrath of God is ready to be poured out upon every single human being on the planet. Uh, today uh, and throughout all of human history, because we are in Adam, where Adam failed, uh, we stand as uh, his progeny, those who are uh, his descendants in the line of Adam. And so the wrath of God is ready to be poured out. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Uh, Romans one thirty two. the end of that passage uh, talks about not only those who do them, but those who also give a approval, those who endorse those who practice these vile things. Uh, Romans chapter 2, uh, Paul does the same thing, talking about the Gentiles, how those who do, are outside the law have, have reaped judgment upon themselves because they know uh, on their conscience what they're doing. And the same thing in Romans chapter 3, he, he, he talks about the Jewish people. And, and ultimately, he, he ends up by saying, who is good? None. No one is righteous. No, not one. That's that's what Paul is doing in those first three chapters of Romans. And really, he's setting up uh, what we want to do here is set up the necessity for someone else uh, because man cannot do it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And just as you explained in Romans 1 and 2 and 3, Paul makes that point so clearly. He makes it so clearly. You know, chapter 1, verse 32, if you practice these things, sin, you are worthy of death. Romans chapter 2, you cannot escape the judgment of God, we're told in verse 3. And then in Romans chapter 3, uh, we're told basically that every mouth is shut or every mouth may be stopped because man has violated God's holy law to such a degree that there is nothing they can actually say back to God to make themselves right with God. Right. And that's ultimately what Paul is trying to get at, because once he finally lays out the good news towards the end of chapter 3, that's when he highlights uh, the diamond of Jesus Christ, uh, you know, under or on top of that black backdrop mm. of, of sin. And, and that's where we're going with this episode. So that, that really... Um, it takes us into the next point that we're talking about here. Th th this is the gospel, and this is right. where we're going with this episode in terms of our Christology series, that Christ perfectly obeyed God's law. That's Christ right. perfectly obeyed God's law. And we're not just talking about outward actions or externals. We even mean down to the core of the core, the heart of hearts, Jesus Christ obeyed God in thought, word, action, deed, feeling, emotion, all of those things perfectly, absolutely perfectly, where I have failed, you have failed, we all have failed countless times. 
literally countless times. Jesus, on the other hand, has fulfilled that perfectly. So I'm going to read a couple scripture references here um, that open up this idea that Jesus was born under the law. That Jesus was born under the law. In other words, he was born as a man underneath the same law that God had distributed to all of humanity. TJ, you want to comment on that before, before I read those verses? No, man, I'm just getting hype. You just you just keep rolling. Well, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 is a critical verse to this conversation. Uh, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Okay, now m- most of the time this verse is referenced is uh, the little section there where it says born of a woman, born of a woman. Okay, the, this verse is often highlighted to emphasize Jesus being born, right? Jesus being human. We talked about that in earlier episodes. But our focus is here at the end of verse 4 where it says that Jesus was born under the law. So he was born under the law of God. Verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now that verse is absolutely loaded. Absolutely loaded. Notice here at the end of verse 4 that Jesus was born under the law and the rest of humanity was born under the law. That, that, that's the idea here, is that Jesus took on human flesh, and one of the components of that was so that he could be born under the law to ultimately fulfill that law perfectly. And I don't want to give it away because that's where we're going. Okay. Um, I would also add Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 to the mix. Uh, verse 17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And again, Galatians 4.4, Hebrews 2.17, read those verses on your own. And again, those verses are absolutely loaded for the discussion at hand. Yeah, man, uh, just love the way you've, you've done this and you've set us up to show. And what we've done for the first half hour was talk about the way that the law was set up and what the law was for and why the law was so important because all of humanity stands condemned because of the law, uh, because Adam failed and every person following Adam failed to fulfill the law. And it's not just that we failed, but it's that we failed to do what is absolutely required. Uh, It's not just, oh, if you hadn't participated uh, in this activity, then you would be innocent. Uh, The point is you have to fulfill the law. You have to perfectly complete the law. You have to live and demonstrate perfect obedience to this law. And so where we failed, we do not have a right standing before God. We have accrued a sin debt that we owe. Um, And and again, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, uh, but even if that debt is canceled, which we've we've talked about with the atonement uh, on the cross, Jesus covers the sin debt, but that's not enough. We cannot have a neutral account to 
uh, fellowship with a perfect and holy God. We have to have a righteousness that allows us to have communion with a righteous God. And so this is where uh, the perfection of Jesus becomes so significant. He comes to this earth, and we've said before, he didn't just go to the cross as an infant. He he lived, he fulfilled the law, and and we're going to see why, because he demonstrates an obedience, a perfect obedience uh, that we failed to attain, but that he does. Uh, You know, talking about this, Lance, I'm just going to mention this real quick, and then I want us to talk about the active and passive obedience of Christ. I think this is uh, a really, the the kind of the crux, the the critical uh, component of this episode. Um, But I loved uh, when I studied Martin Luther uh, a few years ago, I took a, co- a course on Luther. Uh, maybe, maybe the best paper I've ever written. Uh, so, if you're if you're interested in reading about Martin Luther uh, on his distinction between the law and the gospel, uh, I would love to be able to interact. If you if you want to read that, I would love to send uh, this paper that I've written uh, so we, I, I can have an interaction, have a conversation with somebody about it because it is so profound the way that Luther viewed scripture to say the law showed us where we failed, uh, where we couldn't uh, complete what is required of us and where the law is. It points to a need for the gospel and the gospel shows the the, the magnitude of the grace and the mercy of Christ. Uh, and, and there's just this beautiful lens by which scripture can be read to see that distinction between law and gospel. It's so powerful. So uh, that is critical for us as we think through this uh, with the way that Jesus accomplished his work and he accomplished it in kind of two aspects or two ways. And Lance, I'm going to ask you to kind of run us through uh, that conversation, kind of kind of lead us through that. Oh, man. You've got to get that published. We, <laughs> it's we not get that those good. Th- <laughs> <laughs> it was just fun to write. That's what I meant. <clears throat> I remember you talking about that class um, a, a few years back and just how helpful. I, I mean, I specifically remember you and I having a conversation about uh, not necessarily your paper, but that topic in general. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I'm going to give yeah. you my email try- address when we're done yeah. here, and you got to. I tried that to have you read that, and you did, you had you wanted no part of it. So <laughs> <laughs> it's because my Mondays are busy as an intern. <laughs> I man. know, man. I know you got you're slammed. <laughs> okay, so we're talking about the obedience of Christ. He became a human, and he obeyed God's law perfectly. Now. Uh, theologians throughout the centuries, in particular uh, from the time of the Reformation on, have broken down Jesus's obedience to God and his law in two components. So I'm, I'm going to mention those two components and then we'll kind of draw out uh, what they mean and some implications. The, the first uh, component is active obedience. Active obedience. This can also uh, be labeled moral satisfaction. Okay, so we have active obedience, also known as moral satisfaction. We're going to come back to that. The second component of Jesus's obedience is called passive obedience. Passive obedience, and that is sometimes called penal satisfaction. Okay, So those are the two components of obedience that we're going to kind of flesh out here. So let's go back to the first one, active obedience or moral satisfaction. Okay, I think both of those terms are are helpful. Um, A.A. Hodge, a Princetonian theologian, Charles Hodge's son, he defines active obedience as Jesus embracing his entire life and death viewed 
as vicarious obedience. Robert Raymond, a Presbyterian pastor, theologian, and seminary professor, defines active obedience as Christ's full obedience to all the prescriptions of the divine law, making available a perfect righteousness before the law that is imputed or reckoned to those who put their trust in him. Now, let me read that first part again, because I think that he actually defines active obedience better than Hodge does, uh, to be honest. But Robert Raymond, here's how he defines active obedience or moral satisfaction. Christ's full obedience to all the prescriptions of the divine law. In other words, Jesus Christ, in his active obedience, this component of his person and his work, he fully obeyed every tiny prescription of God's holy law. Now, if you just sit back and think about that accomplishment, I mean, that should take us to our knees. That should put us in awe, speechless, the fact that someone could fully obey God. It's just, it's just profound. This, this is what was required for a, for a, a human being to attain salvation, to attain fellowship with God, to have eternal life, right? This is what, when we talk about his act of obedience, his moral satisfaction, this is what is required in order for a human to, uh, if it were possible to be justified by the law, this would be how it would be done. Uh, Paul says it's it's impossible because we've fallen. We are in sin. We have uh, no one seeks after God. No one can do this uh, because we have a moral inability, as as Edwards would say, uh, because our our hearts are wicked, desperately sick above all things. But if we were to be able to, this is how it would have to be done. There would have to be a perfect accomplishing of the law in every aspect. And Lance, I loved what you said. It's not just external. Um, I, I heard a church member or somebody in the community recently uh, say something about how they were really biting their tongue a lot lately, you know, and, and considering it a victory. And yeah, that's a good thing. We don't want to, there's certain things we don't want to say, but the tendency to want to say those things, that that's a, a an indicator, right, of a sinful heart. Jesus doesn't have that. Jesus has accomplished a perfect submission to the law, a perfect fulfilling of the law with all his desires, his thoughts, his his attitudes. Everything that he does is perfect. And that is so critical. And I, I love that you put this verse in here, uh, Romans 5, 19, for as through the one man's disobedience, we've talked about this before, uh, this is Adam. By Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. We've talked about how Adam served as the federal head of humanity. I believe this was in our anthropology series and homardiology series uh, where we talked about original sin. Um, so Adam sinned. His disobedience was was given or distributed or imputed to all of humanity as a result. Even so, Paul continues, through the obedience of the one, talking about the better Adam, the second Adam, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And so, whereas Adam's disobedience brought death, the son, Jesus' obedience, so there's the contrast, right? Where Adam did not fulfill, Jesus did, and by his obedience, there comes life because of the righteousness that is attained through it. Um, man, that's that's... That's what we see with the active obedience or the moral satisfaction of the law. Man, uh, 
that that Romans five passage, uh, the the comparison between Adam and Jesus is, uh, I mean, uh, out of all of Romans, man, that's up there probably a top three portion of Romans for me. Yeah. Uh, especially the the uh, the truth and the implication that it that it, we can draw out for this particular episode, um, yep. Adam's disobedience where he failed, and where you and I failed. This is where Christ had victory. He he, he was completely obedient to the Father, um, and, and this is a righteousness that we'll see here in just a few moments uh, that only Jesus uh, has. And, and that what we as sinful human, humanity, de- we, we desperately need. Yep. Um, now, we, we put here on the guide, and, and I want to remind us of, uh, of this and remind our listeners of this, and I think we touched on this last episode. And we're talking about God's law, man breaking God's law, God not having the ability or capacity to turn his head. However, Jesus Christ comes into the world and he lives righteously. And we'll see that, you know, he's ultimately the uh, the righteous substitute that we need. Why is it this way? I, I, I want to ask you that question, TJ. I know you're going to answer this one. I'm going to send you a softball. Uh, but wh- why why this way? Well, why isn't there another way? Yeah, wh- why does it have to be through... Um, why does it have to be through Christ vicariously? Why why can't it be through um, your pastor? Why why can't it be through an elder at your church or a Sunday school teacher or a family member? Why this way? Man, I, I got to be honest. It's my birthday, so I wasn't really expecting you to to throw one at me that I wasn't ready for. But uh, but um, it it has to. There has to be. We've talked about this before. There has to be a divine satisfaction, right? Because of the divine standard, the holy standard that's been set. So there is no uh, means by which any human being uh, can can step in because this is God's standard and God is the one who has determined. Um, we talked about this a little bit with the atonement and, and I'm, if you want to go somewhere else with this, I apologize, uh, but it is my birthday again. So I, I feel like I've been allowed to say this, but, but God, when there are two offending parties, the, or two uh, parties that are at odds with one another, the offended party is the one who sets the, st- the stipulation for uh, the satisfaction. And that is God in this case. He has set the standard. He has set uh, the requirement for that satisfaction. And so um, that must be accomplished in the way in which God has determined that it would be accomplished. Um, any, any, clarity that, I, that you could bring to that? Because uh, I'm not sure if that's exactly where you wanted me to go. No, that's great. That's why I asked, man. I knew you would go that route. Um, and uh, I'm glad that you uh, were able to uh, answer that on your birthday, man. We don't, we don't want more <laughs> memes now with, you know. <laughs> yeah, we know, we know it's, it's possible out there. It, it is possible. Okay, so that's Jesus's active obedience, moral satisfaction. Uh, secondly, let's talk about his passive obedience or the penal satisfaction. Uh, to quote from A.A. A. Hodge, he defines passive obedience as Jesus embraces his entire life and especially his sacrificial death viewed as vicarious suffering. Robert Raymond goes on to define passive obedience as Christ's willing obedience in bearing all the sanctions imposed by that law against his people because of their transgression, being the ground of God's justification of sinners by which divine act they are pardoned. Okay, so 
to summarize passive obedience um, in comparison to active obedience, remember active obedience is talking about uh, Christ's obedience to the prescriptions of the law. Passive obedience is Christ fulfilling the penalty of the law. Right. The penalty of the law. Uh, so we could say it this way, that Christ satisfies the penal demands of the law. Remember, we talked about earlier in terms of God's holy law, that his law also demands uh, punishment. The law has consequences for breaking that. Okay, So in Christ's passive obedience, he has willingly he has willingly, that's what I want us to understand, he has willingly taken upon himself the sanctions imposed by that law, the penalty for breaking the law. He's taken that upon himself. And, and, and again, if you think about this, he is the righteous, the holy one. If there was anybody to have ever lived that did not deserve any punishment whatsoever, it was Jesus Christ. I mean, this is the magnificence of the gospel message, and this is the beauty of Jesus Christ. Um, so I, I think there's a, some scripture references that we can run through here. First um, Peter chapter two verse twenty four, Peter writes that Jesus, He Himself, bore our sins in His body on the cross. Hebrews chapter nine verse twenty eight says, "So Christ also." having been offered once to bear the sins of many. So what I want us to see here is that Jesus Christ is taking the affliction. He is taking the penalty. He is taking uh, the consequence on himself, on himself, okay? That's exactly right, man. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, uh, same same uh, thing that you just mentioned there. Uh, Galatians 4, 4, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And so he steps in, and and I, I love that, that you've made this distinction here, uh, that the, the penalty that comes uh, from this disobedience of man uh, is included in the law itself, right? This is a prescription within the law. Uh, this is not external. This is within the law itself. And so that's why it can be classified as obedience to the law, but passively. Uh, I, I think uh, maybe the clearest distinction here uh, between active and passive obedience from the pages of Scripture, I, I think it's uh, very distinct in, in John's gospel. So in John chapter 17, you have the high priestly prayer. And in verse 4, uh, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. So he says, I came to this earth, and I glorified you in my life, all the things that I've done. That's his active obedience. And then we know this one in John nineteen thirty, when he was on the cross, right before he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What are the last words that he utters? It is finished. So he says, actively, I have finished it in the active obedience. And then in the passive obedience, he says, it is finished. So this is a passive, even the voice there is passive to say it is now accomplished. It is finished. Uh, so actively, he accomplishes uh, the fulfilling of the law in his life. And then passively, he accomplishes and fulfills the penalty of breaking the law in his death. So you see both uh, there in John's gospel kind of juxtaposed with one another. Um, any comments on that? 
Yeah, l- let me comment on that. That was pure gold. Not on the guide, by the way. Not on the guide. Just, man, just pure gold. I'm so glad you, you uh, again, that you add that material on the fly. Um, what happened? I blacked I, out. I don't know. What did I say? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what I don't get on the guide, TJ, you know, tends to be able to, to interject here that, you know, it flows perfectly with the point that we're trying to make um, is that, that Christ, again, he, he's actively accomplishing something. He's actively accomplishing what man could not um, in terms of the law, in terms of sin, in terms of righteousness, those things uh, that, that, that we've mentioned and that TJ, you um, kind of brought to a head and a conclusion for us. Um, I think that brings us into our next point. And I think we may save some of this point uh, for our next episode on resurrection, but this point would be that Christ satisfies God's justice. So I I guess I would frame it this way. How do we know Mm. that God's justice has been satisfied? How do we know um, that Jesus really did accomplish and he did finish uh, those two points that you made, TJ? How how do we know that God accepted that? Right. and and I think we've somewhat given that away, but we're going to discuss that really in more detail uh, with, with our next episode. Anything you want to add or at least no, um, kind of preview? That's a, that's a perfect tease, man, because that's where we're going to go. All of these things that we've discussed are validated and verified by the resurrection and ascension. And that's what that's the next uh, the, that's the next episode, kind of the capstone episode to the Christology series is looking at. Uh, the work of Christ that is finished uh, post-death on the cross, and that is his resurrection and ultimately his ascension. And so, and I love the way that you said that. That's how we know uh, that this uh, obedience was uh, accepted, that it was satisfactory, that it was perfect. And so that's a perfect preview for that. Uh, Lance, uh, kind of the last section, and I'd love to kind of wrap up with this. Why does this really matter for the believer. Uh, so in other words, my question would be, um, Jesus went to the cross and died for my sin, man. Like, yeah, he had to be sinless, but what does this active and passive obedience, why does that have any effect on anything for me? Because I thought on the cross, he covered my sin. I thought that the whole point was his sacrifice took my sin away. Uh, in what way then does this obedience, play into my salvation, my Christian experience, the, the, the gospel itself? How, how does this matter? What, what implications might there be? How, how would we answer that question? Yeah, man, well, Scripture teaches from cover to cover that man is sinful, man is unrighteous, man cannot meet the standard of God, man cannot keep the law of God. We, we've demonstrated that even, even on this episode. But the flip side of that is, is that Christ has obeyed God. He has met the standard of God. He has obeyed God perfectly. He is righteousness. And so man's account, man's sinful account, every individual human being, their account is is full of unrighteousness and unrighteousness alone. There's nothing but unrighteousness in man, as the Scripture teaches. Christ, on the other hand, is full of righteousness. There's no spot in it. But but the issue is, and this is where we're going with the gospel message, is that, that that man cannot save himself. Man cannot obtain righteousness on his own because he is only unrighteous. 
Remember, he, he runs from God. He hates God. He's not good. Romans 3, we've talked about that. However, if man does repent and believe in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, if man repents and believes in his person, that righteousness of Christ can be credited, can be reckoned, can be imputed to the, the unbeliever. It can be imputed to the sinner. So if you repent and believe, your unrighteousness was bore on the cross by Jesus Christ in his body. But then his righteousness, his 33 years of unadulterated righteousness is then placed in your account. Your account. That's that double imputation. I remember, TJ, when you were preaching, um, I don't know, I guess it was probably a couple years ago when you were given the gospel message, you know, you talked about that double imputation, mm-hmm. that Christ takes, your unrighteousness is imputed to Christ on the cross, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, mm-hmm. and then his righteousness is imputed to you. There's there's this divine transaction that takes yes. place. Yeah. Um, you know, so this isn't just theological uh, terminology for terminology's sake, like you said. But we have to understand this: that Christ's righteousness can be placed in your account, not because of anything that you have done, but because solely of what He has done. Now, I'm going to send it back to you. You make a couple comments. We're going to roll through about four scriptures here, and then we'll get into the initiative. Yeah, man, dude, I I, I don't really have anything to add. I'm just going to say it again another way because that was so uh, succinct and direct. And if you're listening, just hit rewind and listen to that again uh, for the last two minutes that you talked about that because that was so clear uh, and so profound uh, and yet so simple. Uh, I love, we've talked about this before, Luther refers to it as an alien righteousness, right? Like there's nothing in and of ourselves that we can uh, that we can muster up on our own to be able to, to have right standing before God. Uh, we need an alien righteousness, and that righteousness is the righteousness of Christ, which he attained or accomplished through the obedience that we've spent the last hour talking about, right? Like that's that's what's so significant about the he was tempted in every way. So where we fail, his success can be imputed to us. So where we get a failing grade, his 100% is now placed on our grade book, right? So where we have a, a debt that we owe to the to the bank, uh, that debt has been canceled, but now our balance is not zero. No, our balance is in like it, just an infinite amount of, of treasures have been dumped into our account because his righteousness has been given to us. And so it's not just a cancellation of a debt, but it's an accrual of a righteousness that's not our own. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3, 3 9, uh, that may I be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, not my own doing, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And that from God is the righteousness of Christ, that divine transaction that you talked about, man. That is the gospel message right there in Philippians chapter 3. Yeah, man. Speaking of Philippians chapter 3, you're going to be preaching on that pretty soon, right? Yep. We're, yeah, we're a couple of weeks just, away. Woo. All you need to do is just get video up in the worship center and just play play this uh, episode on YouTube, there we, man. There we go. We're ready. That's, I don't think that's what you're trying to do. That's so. not what I'll do, but still, maybe maybe we'll have some overlap there. Uh, I always like that. So yeah, that's that's Philippians 3.9, and it's straightforward. Yeah, that, that that is straightforward. Paul elsewhere in Romans chapter 10, uh, verse 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is their salvation. 
For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So Paul here, he's talking about uh, he's talking about the Jews that they misunderstood God's righteousness, they misunderstood Christ's righteousness, and they thought that they could attain a righteous status on their own. Mm. That's why he says, look, they were seeking to establish righteousness on their own, but they misunderstood it all. Right, And then he goes on in verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Which, again, is so profound. To the person that repents and believes in Christ, through him you have now met the standard that the law demands. Right, Not on your own, but what Christ has done. That's right, man. I love that. We we can now say that we meet the standard because when God sees us, he, he doesn't see our attempt. He doesn't see our poor uh, effort. He sees uh, even our best effort, which is just filthy rags. What he sees is the righteousness of the Son who attained that righteousness through the perfect obedience that we've talked about uh, actively uh, and passively in his life. Uh, just so powerful. Galatians 2, uh, verses 16, really all the way down through 21. Uh, just in summary, here's what Paul says. You can't be justified by works of the law. You, you can't be justified by works of the law. But you are justified through faith in Christ because uh, it is by the, the, the work of Christ that righteousness has been given to us. And so he, he, he goes on in Galatians chapter 3, he says, that, You foolish Galatians, who, who's, who's confused you on this? Why, why would you start to drift back into some other version of the gospel? Here it is. You can't do it on your own. Uh, and he says in verse 21 of Galatians 2, If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Uh, it doesn't come through the law. Christ did need to die, and he needed to die so that righteousness might be attained uh, in some other way, and that's the purpose of the gospel. Man, this has been a a rich episode. Uh, as we hop into our, our initiative, let me just tell you guys, Lance and I debated on how to navigate this. This is not an easy conversation because most systematics, Lance, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm speaking, most systematics don't do this. Uh, it's usually more kind of interspersed throughout other doctrines and other conversations. And to try to pull all this together uh, is a little bit unorthodox, but I think it was helpful. I, I certainly benefited from the conversation. This has been a terrific conversation for me. Yeah, man, I appreciate you wrapping up, uh, talking about the book of Galatians, uh, in particular, verses 16 through 21, man, absolute gold, absolute gold. Mm. Um so that takes us into our initiative. Um, I, I mean, I just have a quote here from William Shedd. I'm not going to read all of it, but just part of it. And he, he was a he, he was a 19th century theologian. He's kind of in the mix with Boyce, James P. Boyce, and Charles Hodge, and those guys that that time period, that time frame. But he says the vicarious satisfaction of justice is then the highest form of mercy. So this entire conversation that we've had about Christ obeying God, active, passive, uh, and those things, it's, it's the highest form of mercy. Why? Shed goes on to say, the infinite and eternal judge allows, prepares, and is 
a substitute for the criminal. I mean, this is the gospel message. We mm. need this perfect obedience of Christ. We need the righteousness of Christ. We've mentioned it a couple times already. We need uh, the alien righteousness that Luther talks about, and, and, it, and it's found in the person of Jesus. Man, that's exactly right. That's that's outstanding. Uh, man, I think for my initiative, I'll, I'll just go a little bit more simple and just say um, the active and passive obedience of Christ, the the perfection of his satisfaction, the perfection of his obedience is a necessary and often overlooked component of the gospel. And we need to remember that Jesus in his perfection, yes, the Lamb of God in his sinlessness, yes, he went to the cross, but he didn't go to the cross without first coming to to accomplish what he came to do. Uh, yes, he came as the, the greater priest and the greater prophet and the, the greater king and the greater Adam and the better Moses and the better David and all of those types which pointed towards him. Uh, but he came as one who would fulfill the law and do what we couldn't do. And without that, we would not have a righteousness that allows us to fellowship with the Holy God. And so we need to remember this critical, critical uh, component of the gospel. Lance, any other comments, man? Happy birthday, man. Ah, thanks, dude. This is, yeah, I hope this, you guys have fun tonight. Yeah, me too. This was a, uh, uh, you, you asked me uh, a couple days ago, are, you, are we going to record a podcast on your birthday? You better believe it, man. Like this is this is what I love getting to do this. And uh, hope hopefully if you're listening, hopefully you're one of our regular listeners who each and every week you hop on and, and you keep up with us and you you think theology through with us. And uh, if you're not doing that, uh, we want to invite you to, to, to join us and you can uh, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. You can uh, catch us on YouTube, subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can like us on Facebook at Reformed Informants. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at R underscore Informants. And if you want to find any of our social media platforms, any of our previous episodes, or some some fresh Reformed Informants gear, you can do that all at our website at www.themajestiesmen.com slash Reformed Informants. Yeah, if you have any questions or suggestions for topics of discussion, if you'd like to send TJ books for his birthday, I'll give you my mailing address. Yeah, that'd be perfect. Yeah, and feel free to contact us at reformedinformants at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.